As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all... It's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Do you ever dream of starting something game-changing? Then Visa can help make it happen. Maybe it's creating and selling your own customized kicks for cats. Or transforming your dorm into a plushy pop-up shop. Or finally going mainstream with your streaming side hustle. The NFL is full of game changers. Just think about watching Patrick Mahomes during his MVP season and knowing as you watched every single game that the league was never going to be the same. Whatever you're bold enough to try, Visa has the power to help bring your game-changing ideas to life. Visa. Anyone can change the game. This is The Athletic Football Show. The Athletic Football Show. Today's Tuesday, September 6th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today, my good friend, Deontay Lee. Deontay, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, man. Had to take a, took a little break from work for a little bit last week, uh, but I'm feeling a little bit better and just ready. Now the regular season is here, man. I'm ready to get after it. I've been waiting we for this all season. Very close. Very, very close. Couple days here. I'm ready for the games to start, but we are digging into a fun division today. A division that includes the defending Super Bowl champs. I think a couple teams that certainly have some playoff aspirations, and that is the NFC West. So let's start with those defending Super Bowl champs. The way that we've kicked all of these off so far is that I've been asking our guests, how are you feeling about this team as we get toward the season here? So I pose this question to you. Two days before the season starts, how are you feeling about the defending champion Los Angeles Rams? Uh, I'm going to steal from our other uh, good pal here that comes on the athletic football show and Nate Tyson use a basketball analogy. And so I, I feel the same way about them that I felt about like the 2013 and 2014 heat. It's like I still love all the pieces, but I know we're going to get a nice little champagne hangover this season. So I almost don't even want to evaluate them until like the week eight, week nine mark. I have a very similar answer. You know, it's been a couple of years for me personally, but you know, but you remember you used to have a big night out and mm-hmm. you'd wake up and 
the entire house is covered in beer cans and right. you don't know where your wallet is and yes. you have no idea where one of your buddies is. Like uh-huh. everything is generally fine, but you're definitely paying for the choices that you just made. Absolutely. That's how I feel about this version of the Rams. That's where we are. Like a lot of the guys are the same. They're, I think they're still going to be a good team. Uh, the infrastructure with Sean McVay certainly deserves the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, Andrew Whitworth is gone. Von Miller is gone. Darius Williams is gone. Some of the guys you were hanging out with last night didn't make it home. Right. Like there, <laughs> there is nary a homegrown player on this team to be found because of all of the draft picks that they've traded away. Like yep. There are guys that are totally unproven. They're going to be stepping into starting roles. We have more brain drain on offense and defense with the coaching staff. This is just what happens when you do what the Rams have done on the personnel side and when you have a coaching staff and a franchise and an organization that's worth stealing from, you end up in the position that the Rams are currently in right now. And honestly, what you said at the end is something I think is a little bit more compelling than even the personnel losses. And that's a brain drain. And it's not just last year, right? It's what you're detailing. When you contend basically year over year for a half decade, legitimately, These are the situations that you find yourself in once you get over the hump. You know, the roster doesn't look bad, but it does look like a roster that's been deep in playoff runs every season, basically, uh, since since uh, Sean McVay and Jared Goff was there, you know, let alone now having Matt Stafford in. And now with with what guys are being paid and trying to remake this roster, it's not exactly like what we saw in Kansas City over this past offseason, right, where. Guys are just starting to get big money, you know, so now you can kind of remake things or you can make certain decisions in certain ways. Last year was an all in. We're paying whatever the cost is to go win a title. And it looks like the balance is due at certain positions. And I still like the core that they have. It's just going to be really interesting to see how they try to manage, I think, some of the depth issues at some of these positions throughout the year. Yeah, there's a lot to sort through, and there's a lot for them to work through. Let's start with the offense. Uh, let's get to the Sean McVay's group first and foremost. What's the biggest question that you have about the Rams' offense heading into this season? Um, beating the same drum, but it's all about Allen Robinson to me. Um, and I would say secondarily, it's what this running back core is going to look like with everybody quote unquote healthy. But really, I want to see what it looks like for Allen Robinson as the X, or you know, if they move him around. If he is a move guy, I know that's something that we've talked about, something I've heard you and Nate talk about. Um, I think you and Jordan, uh, Rodriguez talked about that when you were doing your training camp tour. I'm really fascinated to see his usage. Um, I think there's an opportunity for him to be used in Los Angeles in a way that he just never could have really done in Chicago because of what the rest of the receivers were around him. But having Cooper Cup in the fold and then obviously having the mind that is Sean McVay, I think that you can manufacture some touches for him that keeps this offense efficient and I think gives us a version of Robinson that we probably haven't seen in a couple of seasons. And we haven't seen a receiver like this on the Rams right. I, I, during the Sean McVay era. I love Robert Woods. Robert Woods is such a fun player, and he was so perfect for what they wanted to be over the last few years. And then Odell is what Odell is. Mm-hmm. But having that kind of bigger body, contested catch guy on the outside who can be that outside the numbers, boundary receiver, that's what he is. He has that side to him. But like right. you just mentioned, I think they're going to use him in a bunch of different ways. So he can be that guy, but can he play in the slot for them when they have him and Cooper Cup inside in certain looks? I just think you're going to see him play all over the place, and I think we're going to see a really good version of him. So what he does and what layer he adds to their passing offense, I think, is a huge question. For me, it's does this passing blueprint, this wide open one they had last year, can it continue? heading into the second season. And the reason that I ask that is that even with Matthew Stafford back, even with Cooper Cup back, even with Allen Robinson now in the mix here, 
I'm worried about them holding up up front. These two numbers are really interesting. So Stafford finished 37th in pressure rate among 40 qualified quarterbacks last year. He was not pressured that often. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a reason for that. There's two numbers that don't really square when you think about them. He was 7th in the league in the number of dropbacks that took two and a half seconds or longer. Think about how downfield their passing game was and how long right. it took for some of that stuff to develop or some of those backside digs that we talk about him hitting. But he was 19th in pressure rate on those plays. Those numbers do not compute. Their pass protection last season was really good. I mean, Andrew Whitworth is still playing at an extremely high level as he gets close to 40 years old, as he gets to 40 years old. So now, even if they're enthusiastic about Joe Noteboom stepping in there, it still is potentially a downgrade. And I just think that the protection they got up front and their ability to really attack teams late into downs and down the field was such a huge part of who they were. Can they continue to do that this year with some new pieces up front? That is a major question. And to me, you know, you can all, you can catch the league with something in one year, right? It's hard to do that season over season. So you're going to see different looks when they get into those empty sets when it's a tight end and a running back, um, you know, chipping on edges and then releasing out into the flat. When you're trying to push for these posts and overs and these backside digs. Those are things that can be available to you when you bring in a quarterback, you know, and it's his first year with the head coach and you're trying to implement some different things offensively. And that's what we saw last season. Um, I think it is going to be a little bit different this year. And this is where, to me, um, Allen Robinson and the running game, I think, kind of meet. So it's not and it's not just Sean McVay. When I think about just like the entirety of that Kyle Shanahan tree. Really, the Atlanta run for Shanahan is probably the only point of reference that we have for this offense with the true X receiver. And I think that what Julio Jones did for them as an X, uh, for Kyle Shanahan as an X, was opened up things in the running game because you have to honor him. And when you move him around as a receiver, that adds a lot of value. I would never expect Allen Robinson to look like 2016 Julio Jones. But if you can get some high levels of production for him on the outside and teams do have to treat you as a true spread offense and have safeties rolled over the top, well, maybe you can get not only more for Cooper Cup working one-on-ones, but more light boxes for you to run the ball into. And when you get to that, or if you can get to that, the play-action game opens back up. So there does need to be, I think, a reestablishment of synergy because I don't think it's going to be, hey, every time it's second and nine or third and eight, we can just ask Matthew Stafford to pat the ball for three and a half seconds and drill a dig route, you know, to get us a first down. It might not be the same kind of thing this season. Synergy is a great way to put it because I do think that there was a lack of synergy with the run game and the pass game for them last year. And I honestly think they'd admit it. They spent so much time and energy last season revamping the passing game that the running game dies on the vine a little bit. And I think that's what happened for them last season. So you look at it, they had 95 under center runs last year into five or six man boxes, which was the most in the league. But they still finished 18th in EPA per rush over the course of the year. Those two things, there's a gap there. You should be better running the ball. Just like the passing game, these numbers don't really marry up in the way that you would assume. You got to be better at running the ball if teams are going to dare you to run the ball. And they were 27th and they had 104 shotgun runs last year which was 28th in the NFL. That may not seem like a lot. In 2020, they had 45 of those plays. I'll say it. That's, I mean, that's just not a McVay thing. He's and, not a shotgun run team. And because they're using more shotgun with Stafford, they've had to introduce some of that a little bit more often. They were very bad on shotgun runs last year. So how do you try to tie together all of the elements of this offense as you've had to evolve the passing game? I think that's going to be a big question. Can it all feel a little bit more harmonious this year than it did last year? And oh, go ahead. 
I was I was just gonna say like, and I hate I hate trying to assume things just because guys are off the same coaching tree. But I remember early in uh, Matt Lafleur's tenure in Green Bay when he was trying to establish what he wanted to do on the ground game. The answer was to use their wide receivers in screens and RPOs, right? To try to keep boxes that you like and to stay efficient on early down. So you know, to that point with Cooper Cup, who I think is a great option to have on bubbles. You have Allen Robinson who can run your glance routes or your hitches if guys are playing off coverage. That's something else that we might see because to the point of you know them lacking that synergy that's not what we know of Sean McVay and I'd have to think that this offseason they probably spent a good amount of time watching film on how they can marry up what they do best which is the spread shotgun passing game stuff with the ability to take advantage of these light boxes that we know they're going to get I would not be shocked at all if short of the Chiefs they still lead the league you know in light box rate um, this upcoming season the other part of this that I'm really watching is what happens against the Blitz this year. Yep. Stafford was wildly good against the Killed Blitz it. last season. Unbelievably the best season. quarterback yeah. in the league. And you look at it, teams stopped blitzing them. From week 6 to 18, only Mahomes was blitzed less than that than Matthew Stafford was. Teams found out over the first month and a half of the season, you don't want to fuck with that. You don't That's a do mistake. That, yeah. <laughs> so, but if you look at the numbers, Stafford was 23rd of four, of 34 qualified quarterbacks in EPA per play when he wasn't blitzed between his week six and 18. So do teams just say, we're not going to give you this. We are not going to give it to you. What can you do with it? And that is another question. So I have faith in, in the offensive staff to deal with this. And I do think that some of the little tricks that the Rams have are one of the reasons that they can mitigate pressure. You know, they're using tempo and keeping non-pass rushing groups on the field and all of this stuff. So I don't think all of those we can hold on to the ball and not get pressured numbers are a product of the offensive line. I think some of it is the structure of the offense, but I still think it's just things to watch and keep in mind as we think about what needs to continue for this passing game to look like it did last year. Right. I mean, and again, when you're just looking at the depth chart, it, and this, we'll talk about this on defense as well, because it exists on that side of the ball. There is just a reality of leaning on that Matthew Stafford to Cooper Cup um, connection that we know they're always going to go to when they're in trouble. So it does like all of this, I think, revolves around early downs. What are you doing then? You know, you're going to have to have some kind of versatility or multiplicity offensively around there. So I think, you know, again, taking these shots in the dark, we'll probably see more Matthew Stafford under center on early downs. I think they're going to take a shot, especially early in the season, to see if they can run the ball the way that we know Sean McVay likes to, um, to see if they can open up some of that play action game. Um, I think we're going to see more of the condensed splits again a little bit to see if you can open up or manufacture some space. I think that all of that stuff is going to come back. And that's a great way to help an offensive line that we do see has some attrition. And I think lacks a little bit of depth behind some of the guys that are decent starters up front for them too. We got Sh- Coleman Shelton is going to be their starting right guard. I think he was going to beat out Logan Bruss anyway, who is out for this season with an injury. So just new faces up front. How healthy is Cam Akers? You know, is he all the way back from that Achilles in a way he probably wasn't when we saw him struggle in the playoffs last season? And speaking of lingering injuries, I, we have to mention the Stafford elbow thing. He'll probably be fine, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. It's certainly not a good thing for your quarterback <laughs> yes. to need to be resting his arm in August when we got an entire season to go here. 
You never want to hear your starting quarterback be talked about like a pitcher that's put up 120 innings, you know, worth of work in the, at the midseason point. You know, it, it, it's bad news. It, it's bad news, I think, long term. And I'm really kind of fascinated to see what the status of that is. And we know Matthew Stafford to be a tough play through injury type of quarterback. Um, so if there is, you know, if he falls off of a cliff, which I don't expect, or even just struggles um, with dealing with this injury, I think that there is a lot of a lot of room for danger, I think, with this offense. When you think about some of the other um, potential issues they might have in terms of staying efficient on early downs. A couple little quirks here that I wanted to mention. The Rams kept seven receivers and two tight ends. God bless yep. Sean McVay. Yes. Just, just God, God bless him. Uh-huh. I, I love personnel love to it. the end, man. It, it's so beautiful. And then the other thing, a number that I found digging through some stats, Matthew Stafford threw 16 touchdowns out of empty last season. No one else in the league had more than eight. So it was double every other quarterback in the NFL, which was yes. wild. All those numbers from last year seem fake looking back at it. All right, NFL offense shouldn't be that good. No, it, or that weird, like that yes. good in certain specific ways, which I absolutely appreciate it. All right, let's get to the defense. What's the biggest question you got about the Rams defense heading into the season? Um, to me, I think a lot of it just comes down to what level of multiplicity Raheem Morris can maintain after losing some of the guys that they lost. You know, um, I think that the idea of using your Greg Gaines and Ashawn Robinsons to stop the run make a lot of sense. When you have the optionality to bring an extra one of those guys on the field, I don't know if the same thing exists this season. Um, their defensive backfield is probably drawn the most intrigue for me because I think there's a lot of sameness when you talk about skill set around Jalen, but I don't think it's the same level of high end talent, right? There's not another Darius Williams in this defensive backfield. So what does that look like? Are you going to be able to maximize a guy like Jalen around the rest of these DBs? Um, and, and I think that that's really where I'm focused on. You know, there's obviously the question of Bobby Wagner, who I think fits in almost perfectly to the front seven part of this defense. But I do wonder if they're not as multiple in terms of the kind of fronts and safety shells and how they want to deal with certain personnel groupings from the offense. I do wonder what this is actually going to look like for them. So explain on that a little bit more. Why can't they be as multiple up front? So to me, I think a lot of it starts with the fact that they had Von Miller in the second half of the season. And when you have two guys who are legitimate pass rusher types, legitimate edge defenders, period, because Von Miller is a very underrated run defender, in my opinion, too, um, you do get to make some different decisions with what you want to do with your interior linemen or your interior linemen and linebackers. Last year, linebacker was not a position of strength for them outside of Ernest Jones. So the answer was to get into those bare fronts and bring in these 315, 320 pound guys and eat up the interior. I, I don't know if they have the same level of multiplicity without your, you know, Sebastian Joseph days and, and guys of that ilk, um, to kind of help you out in those types of ways. So I do wonder if the bare front, stuff that we've talked about a bunch on this podcast that you and Nate have talked about a bunch on this podcast. If that is out of the window and you're more of a four down team, there's nothing to be mad at. Cause you still got Aaron Donald playing three technique. So I don't expect them to be bad up front. Um, but when they were in trouble last season, they always had an answer up front for the running game and moving Jalen around in the passing game. And I don't know if the answers are a minus answer is the way that I thought they were last year. You know, it wasn't a perfect defense statistically, but I thought they had some A to A minus level answers when they were in trouble last year, depending on the game plan, especially by the postseason. This year, we're probably close to the a B or B minus level of answers up front and in the secondary. And I wonder what the upper end um, or our higher kind of outcomes might be for a defense in that type of uh, position. 
How the secondary short sorts out, I think, is worth watching. They were second in the league last year and snaps out of dime. Only the Chiefs had more. I assume right. that's going to drop this year just because yes. they're not going to be as motivated to get one linebacker on the field. You have Ernest Jones. You have Bobby Wagner. Yeah, Bobby. Yep. What they do with the back end, though, like I, they used a ton of three safety looks last year. Taylor Rapp played a lot of snaps in the slot. I would assume that happens again in certain situations. Nick Scott played really well for them down the stretch. So you have Fuller, Rapp, Scott, and then you bring back Troy Hill. So you have David Long. Ramsey, Troy Hill, just what they want to do and the flexibility they can show from that group of six. And they like Terrell Burgess. I know that he special teams is, I think, where he's shined a little bit this summer, but he's another guy that made this team. My biggest question is just how they get pass rush without Von Miller. And Justin Hollins is going to step in as I think their other starting edge rusher. But in my mind, it's how do you get pass rush out of your linebackers, right? Yep. Like what sort of pressure looks are we going to see from Bobby Wagner and Ernest Jones playing together? Because both of them are very capable pass rushers. And we saw what Ernest Jones could do late in the season. They rushed five guys on 37% of their third down snaps in the playoffs last year. And they were very, very good when they did it. So I assume they're, they, I think they tapped into something there. So now it's how do you unleash that version of your defense with these two linebackers now that you want to keep on the field? It, it's all on a scale to me, right? There are these balancing factors that come with that. Because the question for me, um, similar to you, or it's tied to that, is what we knew of Raheem Morris's defense last year is that they like to play zone coverage, right? Yeah. And it wasn't wasn't a heavy cover one type of team. This defense backfield, right? This defensive backfield still fits wanting to play more zone coverage. Um, but when you're sending five, which I think is going to be their fastball this year, getting after the quarterback. Um, what that leaves open in terms of holes in the zones can be taken advantage of. Now, again, right, we have to couch all of this with the fact that you have 99, right? You have to couch all of that with, <laughs> with that fact. You still have Leonard Floyd, who is a good, you know, kind of secondary edge rush type. I wish they had a guy, maybe not at the level of Von Miller, but another true secondary guy to play opposite him, um, you know, where they could kind of play off of one another. I just wonder, like, how, how heavily do you have to lean in to creating those five man rushes and playing zone coverage behind it. And just like last, just like we said on offense, you know, in the last segment, you can catch the league with that in year one. I think teams might be a little bit more willing to take chances down the field against them this season. Or we might see teams do a little bit more in terms of specific things formationally, you know, trying to get into bunches and, you know, trying to hide guys, stacking players and these different types of releases and more vertical things down the field, especially away from Jalen Ramsey to see if they can kind of generate those 15 to 18 yard gains, because that's where I think you're going to have to attack this defense. You said you want somebody that's kind of in that Von Miller role. Guess what, yeah. buddy? The Rams got a second to third round pick next year. It's a long season. Yeah, so long I, I would not yeah. be shocked if we had one more body in the building before this was all said and done. What does a successful season look like for the Los Angeles Rams this year? Um, I think their win total is, what, 10 and a half, um, if you're looking at odds. So I, I had their success right at about 10 wins in a, 10 wins in a division title. Um, I try not to say Super Bowl contention for teams. So you're talking to somebody who couches everything. My thing is win a home playoff game. To me, teams that win home playoff games, 10 wins, win the division, you're a legitimate contender or you're at least in the conversation to go out and repeat. So that's what I think would be kind of like the not best case scenario, but a, a certain success on this season. Yeah, I just kind of feel like they're playing with house money. Like, yeah. I mean, after what happened last year, obviously they spent a ton of money to keep this core together. I mean, just look right. at how much they're pushing into future years with the cup contract and the Donald contract, all of that. I think they do want to keep competing. 
I don't think Sean McVay's taken seasons off. But if they win double-digit games and they're in the playoffs and they're in the mix, I think that's totally fine this year. Right. For a, I mean, for a team coming off of a Super Bowl, like to me, that's always the line that I'm I'm interested in seeing is can you get back to the postseason for all the teams that we see win one of these things and then immediately fall apart right after, especially teams that are as veteran heavy, you know, that don't have a ton of depth the way that this team lacks some depth. You usually see those teams kind of fall off the wagon a bit. So if they're still in contention at the top of the NFC West, they do make the playoffs and they get a home playoff game that they can win. To me, that is success. I'm right there with you. Who's one guy you cannot wait to watch on the Rams? We men- we just mentioned him, but it's Ernest Jones. I I, I would love to love see it. what this is going to look like uh, playing next to Bobby Wagner. I think that that will grow his traditional linebacker skill set. But having Bobby does mean that you can do more with Ernest as a as a true rusher type. So I think that you know to that point we're going to see a lot of those five down looks or him walked up on guards. We're going to see some of the double mug package stuff. I would imagine uh, when it's both of them on the field. And them not being in dime and having more of those two backers on means there's a little bit more multiplicity you can have up front. It might come at the cost of what they can do in coverage, but I, I love the idea of using one of, if not both of those linebackers to guarantee that you can keep 99 and one-on-ones. And the more of that you can do, the better you're going to be defensively. I'm going with Allen Robinson. I just want the best for my guy. I just want him to see the light. I want us to see what type of player <laughs> Allen Robinson can be, even if it's a little bit later into his career. So I'm excited to see what that looks like. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Let's get to the San Francisco 49ers. How are we feeling about the Niners? Um, I probably, I think everybody probably feels the same way. You know, there's some unanimity to this. It's everybody should feel good about the defense. I still think this is a top five, if not top three level defense in terms of DVOA, if I had to guess. The core is still intact. I think they improved that corner. Um, and a lot of this is just going to come down to what Trey Lance is or is not at quarterback. That's what all this hinges on. I'm a little concerned. The, the Jimmy thing feels weird. It's very even, weird. Even if it seems like their motivation was, we don't want to lose a good player for nothing. And Kyle Shanahan was quoted last week as saying, there aren't thir- 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL, and we have two of them. As yeah. a coach, I can understand that. Like, that's the way that you're trying to build this thing. But I still just think it's an odd choice. And I we talked about this a little bit on the show. It is crazy how different the staff is there. On top of the change with Trey Lance stepping in at quarterback, they have a new quarterback coach. They have a new passing game coordinator. They have a new run game coordinator. They have a new tight ends coach. They have a new everything. Everything has turned over there. And that's why with the Lance stuff and with the coaching staff stuff, to me, this is a big year for Kyle Shanahan. 
the way we talk about him, the way we think about him, the standing he has in the hierarchy of NFL coaches, all that stuff. I just think I'm going to be laser focused on what this offense looks like with him really at the helm and needing to kind of take on all of it and Trey Lance at quarterback. I mean, that, that's so, it's so fascinating to me with the staff changes. Like, this is one of those times where it's 100% Kyle Shanahan's show, right? We all, and I always make the joke that, you know, in this offense, it almost doesn't matter who the quarterback is because the truth of the matter is that Kyle Shanahan plays quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, you know, but I do think that he wants to. Right. With Trey Lance's skill set, um, you know, the fact that this is basically his first live reps as a starter, um, since he was at North Dakota State, um, you know, outside of like those little spot stars that he had, you know, this is the first time it's really his show. Um, so I'm really fascinated to see what this looks like when the bullets start flying. And because he doesn't have that same kind of brain trust around him in terms of staff and a different kind of quarterback, you know, a, a diametrically kind of different kind of quarterback than, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo was. What the actual personnel and, and offensive usage is going to be around this guy, because I think that you can have some legitimate questions about what level of quarterback you should expect Trey Lance to be right out the gate. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. I wanted to throw this out there. This is the first time in Kyle Shanahan's NFL coaching career that, that he's been a coordinator that a Lafleur or Mike McDaniel has not been on his offensive coaching staff. Wow. The he's first only time. got one Kubiak. <laughs> the first time. He's only got one Kubiak. The, yeah. this, it is the first time. Okay. Mike McDaniel has been on Kyle Shanahan's staff since 2011. All right. And then he was even an offensive assistant on, in 2008 when Kyle Shanahan was there. Matt LaFleur was an assistant in, in 2008 and 2009 with Houston. And then he was there with Washington. This is the first time where those guys, all LaFleur or Mike McDaniel, have not been there. And it doesn't seem like a huge deal, but I do think that it's worth thinking about because that infrastructure and how much guys can lean on their assistance and the way that that works, I, I think that's important. And this is really the first time he hasn't had that, even just to bounce ideas off of. And that process was, is going to look different for them this year. I was just going to say what you usually see from guys who are head coaches or longtime coordinators when stuff like this happens is that they bring in somebody from like a different coaching tree. Right. If you lose all of your guys, I'll bring in a guy who has completely different ideas on offense or defense to come sit down and just throw stuff at me so I can get a different kind of perspective. There's really not a ton of guys on that staff that you can look at and say, like, okay, this is somebody who was very clearly entrenched and well accomplished, you know, in a different type of system. Right. Greasy is their quarterback's coach. Right. You know, it's. It's a completely different context to take on anybody, you know, to look at for anybody underneath that Shanahan, you know, McVeigh type of tree. So to to the point of it being 100% his show, maybe not his show alone, but this is definitely all Kyle's ideas. Um, and that that is different in a, in a way that we don't usually see for guys off of this coaching tree. Kyle Juszczyk, when I was talking to him at training camp, said that after they would be done with meetings over the last few years, him and Mike McDaniel used to talk all the time. Yeah, this is what I'm seeing here, and this is some of the things that I think we can bring to this. And what do you think about this? And that process changes when those voices change. And I think that's worth thinking about. Let's get to the offense here. What's the biggest question that you have about the offense? You touched on it a little bit, but we can expand on it. It's simple, man. Is Trey Lance really ready to roll as a starter? That's all there is. That, that's <laughs> all that there is to talk about. I mean, literally almost every other piece outside of like Alex Mack's retirement is basically the same here. So it's all on, is Trey Lance really ready to roll? Um, watching him in the preseason, 
I think you can see the arm talent. You know, I spent absolutely zero seconds worrying about his mechanics or delivery. Um, but I do think that there's some question on, you know, pocket navigation. What's his timing like? Some of the play actions that, that I saw, you know, I could see him dropping the ball a little early or not stepping up and just delivering the throw in the ways that I would like to see for this type of play action passing game, which is all very based on like very precise timing, which is why Jimmy Garoppolo is so valuable to Kyle Shanahan as a quarterback. So if that's different, like how much growing pains are we really going to see in this offense? And is Kyle going to change what he wants to do offensively if that's not Lance's uh, biggest strong suit uh, coming right out into this season? Jimmy Garoppolo had the sixth fastest time to throw in the NFL last season. Trey Lance held the ball for three seconds on average, which was no one else in the league cracked three seconds. It is very different stylistically. This is a and let me say, some of those three second, some of those three seconds ended with really bad results. <laughs> he was a starter. Usually, when you hold the ball for that long, it's yeah, not a good thing. Bad things happen. Yeah, the Niners led the league in yak again last year. They do it all the time. They led the league in throws to the middle of the field. This offense was structured in such a way that even if it was limited because of what Jimmy right. Garoppolo is, it was incredibly dynamic. <laughs> they were very, very good at the things that they did. So stylistically, even if it's going to change. I do think the ceiling grows at quarterback, but I think the path to that ceiling is going to be winding, my friend. It is going to be very weird. There are going to be some low moments. I mean, you think about some of these numbers are crazy. Jimmy Garoppolo last year threw four deep passes outside the numbers all season. That's how many Trey Lance threw. He started two games. Right. Like it's just a such a different type of quarterback. And maybe that unlocks Brandon Ayuk. And maybe there's a level to their offense that we haven't seen before. But I do think it's going to take a little while to adjust for us and for them. Well, you think about just like stylistically in terms of strengths and what I think we've kind of come to know Kyle Shanahan's offense to be between Matt Ryan and Jimmy Garoppolo. He kind of left a lot of the bootlegs alone, right? When, when those were the quarterbacks, because those, that wasn't those guys' strengths. You know, you could set up the deep pocket, max protect play action and throw those deep in breaking routes to a Brandon Ayuk. You can throw that to a Muhammad Sanu, et cetera, et cetera, you know, when he was in Atlanta. I don't think that that's in Lance's best interest. I think if you're going to do that, that's got to be more of the designer. Hey, we're leaving eight in the protection. We've got a big home run post and a deep over, and you're taking either the 20 yard gain or the touchdown. If not, you're just tucking it or throwing the check down. I think that that might be a little bit more of Lance's speed and everything else should probably be bootlegs. Get the guy on the move. Um, you know, and I think really, uh, encouraging him to use his legs as a weapon. That's something that I was looking to see a little bit more in the preseason that I did, that I did not, um, was a little bit of hesitation, attacking, climbing the pocket, times where he could have tucked it, where it seemed like he wanted to wait and try to make the perfect throw. Those are the things I think that you're going to have to iron out with Lance. And I think that getting him on the move, moving the pocket and using the run game to set up those bootlegs to get him more easy throws, you know, and cutting the field in half for him, that probably will be the best version of play action in this offense. And beyond his own ambition within the structure of certain plays and pushing the ball down the field, some of the second reaction plays. I mean, the fact that we're going to have some explosives that are on the table for them that were not last year, it's just going to be a different feel to who they are. And I still think it's going to be okay because I have faith in Shanahan and the skill position players. And I do think that Lance will eventually get there, but it's going to be a transition and it's going to be an acclimation process for all of us. The other question that I have about the offense though, are we worried about the offensive line at all? 
You know, you have Leg mm. Tomlinson gone. Aaron Banks steps in for him. Jake Brendel is now their starting center. They have a fourth-round yeah. pick, Spencer, Bur- Spencer Burford, starting at right guard. Mike McGlinchey was back at practice last week, but he'd missed two weeks with after aggravating his knee again. Knee, yep. And, I mean, it's... I know that they were hurt last year. You know, Tom Compton played right tackle for half the season for them last year. Daniel Brunskill right. was their starting right guard. There's absolutely a chance that the five they have right now and how it shakes out is a better final product over 17 games than what they had last year. But I still think that all of that change leaves it as a question mark. And, you know, I, I think when we, last time we talked about the 49ers offense, I think I made the remark to you or the joke to you that I don't know how Kyle Shanahan's going to manage not having Alex Mack as a center. Cause basically ever since he bumped into him, he made sure that he was everywhere that, <laughs> you know, those two were kind of tied at the hip. So I'm really fascinated to see what that's going to look like up front. You know, there are a lot of new faces and, you know, beyond that, and this is kind of a follow up question or more of a statement to me is I hope that Devo Samuel is comfortable with being RB2 on this roster because that's kind of where they are in terms of their running back room as well. There's not a lot of running back depth. And I think that, you know, what we know of Elijah Mitchell so far in his career, you're going to have to have some kind of backup option for him in case he is banged up. Um, so I think we're going to get a heavy dosage of touches for Debo. Now, on the flip side of that, you can do a lot personnel-wise. You know, they were able to cause a lot of trouble for teams getting into those what looked like 11 personnel but was 21 personnel formations or uh, what looked like 12 but it's 22 because you're using Debo as a running back. Um, so you still will have a little bit of that available to you. And I think that that might open up the door for them, A, the same way we were talking about with the last team, to protect your offensive line and still get the most out of your early down efficiency uh, with the new quarterback at the helm. We got to take the keys away from Kyle when it comes to running backs. Yeah. This is just getting completely out yes. of hand. And the fact that they just waive Trey Sermon this week uh-huh. after trading up to get him in the third round, and, and you look at the history of it with McKinnon, and mm-hmm. it is absolutely brutal. So, I, I for all of Kyle Shanahan's strengths, uh, picking running backs and understanding how to allocate resources toward them is uh, certainly not in that conversation. Biggest question about the defense for you. Um, to me, my biggest question on defense is: Have they done enough in the secondary to take the next step? Um, with their pass coverage. I, I had no problem with what they were last season, obviously playing a bunch of zone coverage. You know, I think that they were probably as good of a bend don't break defense as you'll see in the modern NFL in terms of rushing for playing a lot of zone coverage, mixing up those coverage shells. Um, so I, I do want to see what the addition of Charvarius Ward looks like. You know, I, I love the, I love the idea of having Ward, Mosley, Lenore, you know, as your three guys or three of your four guys you know, playing next to the linebackers as well and what they have up front. I, I like that front-to-back approach, and I like a lot of the names that they have. I just want to see if you have enough to play a little bit more one-on-one coverage and not have to use your backers and safety so much to protect guys up the sideline. I'm with you. I, I'm How Ward fits into this and whether it leads to more man coverage or whether they just think we're going to play quarters and let them beat the shit out of people, I think that's right. also part of it. I'm worried about the safeties. Should I not be worried about the safeties? Jimmy Ward's on IR. Tafanga or Hufanga, who's their fifth round pick last year, who played a little bit, is their other starting safety. Tarvarius Moore is there. They don't have a yeah. ton of depth at that position. I'm starting to get a little bit concerned about that group. They have 10,000 defensive linemen, so that helps. But <laughs> right. 
You know what? It, maybe this is just the curse of the of this team so far that you can't have a complete defensive backfield one way or the other. Um, Hufunga, I think, is he's decent, right? You know, he's a nice depth piece to have somebody who can step in um, and, and provide a little bit for you. But he's not a guy who can do all the things that Jimmy Ward can do when he's healthy. And even with Ward, I, I don't think that you would consider him to be in the absolute upper echelon. You know, when you think about the best, best athletes at the position, though he's been extremely productive over his career. Um, so I am worried about that as well. And I think that that puts even more pressure on Ward, on Mosley, you know, to be those press beat guys up corners and, and not have to put so much on, you know, those back two to cover for them. This team finished dead last in EPA per dropback against deep passes last year. Just just something to throw out there. Yep. If, the, if the front is not getting home, what happens? Right. That being said, I have faith in the front getting home. <laughs> this group is insane. Okay, They get Javon Kinlaw back. We'll see what that he ends up being. But beyond that, I like Charles Amenahu. I think that he has something to him. He's like the fifth edge rusher on this team. They drafted Jake Drake Jackson. They just have so many guys that they can throw at that problem. I'm very excited and very looking forward to watching that group yet again this season. It seems like they're at least, I think that everybody seems to be a pretty optimistic about Ken Law and, and what he can add as an interior piece for them. Uh, so that's kind of given me a little bit of happiness, a little bit of hope, you know, and optimism about what it's going to look like in terms of their interior pass rush as well. And to your point, man, and you look at what they have on the edge, that kind of rolling five, six man rotation that they can basically employ whenever the hell they want is going to be a major problem for these team for these teams. Um, and what they have at linebacker, you know, I think that you can probably do a little bit more in terms of pressure, even if those front four aren't getting home and you want to play more soft coverage like the Rams do, you have that ability to do so, something that they kind of played around with as the season went on last year. So I, I do love what they have up front, and I think if they have Kinlaw to play next to um, Armstead, and he's there and, and really reliable, then that takes even more stress off of your number two or number three or number four edge rushers in Ebucab and Jackson and Omenahu. All guys who could really get a lot of snaps for most teams in the NFL. Yep. And they are not starters for All three team. of those guys are probably be starting for most teams in the league. All right. What does a successful season look like for the San Francisco 49ers this year? Um, I'm going to be a complete loser and, and just copy and paste the same answer I gave for the Rams. <laughs> um, I think that their, their total is right around nine and a half. So I'd say that they're probably about a 10 win team, I think, or, or that's what I would consider success for them. 10 win. I would think unlike the Rams, if I'm them, I'm shooting to win that division. Um, because you want to guarantee that you get home playoff games as many as you can. And if that's where you're at, then that probably means that Trey Lance finished the season playing well or was not a problem for this offense. And that might be, from a narrative perspective, even bigger than a win total or, or their playoff seed. That's what I got. By the end of the season, is Trey Lance a guy? Yeah. Is he one of those guys? Because the bet you made on him, you better hope so. You better and hope so. And that, that, to me, is really going to dictate what a success or failure for them. Making the playoffs again would be great. And, and the other side of it is, you know, you said this, and I, am, I, I trust you, and I, I tend to agree with you because I really like so many of the things that they do. By the end of this year, are they just one of those defenses? Mm -hmm. Is this little ecosystem they have defensively, are they just a top seven unit every year and we just trust their ability to keep pumping these guys out? Because I think we're there. But I, I yeah. really want to see them kind of lock that down and have right. that be their definitive reputation with D'Amico Ryans and Chris Kasurik and all of that by the end of this season. I'm with you on that. Player you can't wait to watch on the Niners. 
Uh, it would be Drake Jackson. Um, I'll be a complete USC homer. Uh, but I just think that <laughs> if, if he hits early, you have two guys who have legitimate bend, legitimate elite pass rush traits. You know, what we've seen established already by Nick Bosa. If you have a true number two who can be a speed rusher opposite him and he can provide what I think he still needs to grow in in terms of being a run defender – then we're really cooking with gas, I think. And that takes a lot of those questions that I think that we both have about this secondary. Um, and maybe not throw them completely out the window, but it certainly mitigates a lot of them. Um, and I think that having him focus on just pass rush, which is not something that he had available to him at USC, will give him a chance to do what I think he does best, which is get off the ball and affect the QB. This front seven, and especially the front four, the front four I think is my favorite unit to watch in the NFL. Yeah, almost independent of who's playing, but I think yes. Nick Bosa is arguably. I was going to say arguably the best edge rusher in the league. I would say he's probably the mo- the one I enjoy watching the most. Yeah, say, that's. You know, I think that's fair. Go by fun meter. He's probably the most fun edge to watch in the NFL. Yeah, he's definitely in that conversation, and I think he's closer to the top than most people probably would say. And then mm-hmm. you combine that with just the style they have all the way across the board and all the dudes they have. It's just such an enjoyable group to watch play together. So they're up there for me. I want to see what Brandon IU can be. Even yeah. the little snippets I got during training camp this year and some of the flashes we got late last season, that dude is insanely talented. <laughs> like insanely talented. And he now I, he really can. He really can. I mean, but with the ball in his hands, down the field. I just think this is the year potentially even I overpaid for him drastically in in my home fantasy league because I was like, I want this. Like, I just want to be on the roller coaster. I don't know if the volume will be there for him to blow up in that way, but I would not be at all shocked if we get 10, 12 mind boggling plays by the end of the season from Trey Lance and Brandon Ayuk in that pairing. All right. Arizona Cardinals. How are we feeling about the Cardinals right now? So I'm pretty sure that you and I spoke about this, and I probably phrased this the exact same way when we talked about it before, but I, I don't know what to feel about this roster, so I don't know what to feel about this team. Um, there's a lot of duplicity, I think, at a lot of key positions for them. Um, I think that quietly, they probably put together a better offensive line than I would have imagined that they would have had. You know, Defend some of the that. Day- <laughs> I think that they, I think it's better than what I would have expected. I think they're decent enough uh, up front. Um, and I think that there's a lot up in the air in terms of what they're going to do uh, up front defensively as well. So I think they'll be okay because I like the quarterback, but I don't love that this roster is kind of built for Kyler and almost Kyler independently to have to lift them back up to the playoffs again. I am feeling unmoved. That's how I would phrase it. I am unmoved by the Arizona Cardinals. The bets they made this offseason seems to be, all right, if we bring in Hollywood Brown, he can make up for the loss of Hopkins in the short term and eventually Christian Kirk in the long term. Other than that, you're really just hoping that getting Hopkins back healthy and keeping Kyler healthy is enough to change your fortunes in the back half of the season because they didn't do anything else. Anything else. Nothing else. Anything. Will Hernandez and Cody Ford are the big moves that they made. I know the offensive line was banged up down the stretch, but even when healthy, I don't like it as much as even you do in the couching <laughs> that you were just trying to do yes. and the hedging we were trying to do over that. 100%. <laughs> it just the amount of resources this team has spent on pass catchers over the last few years is absolutely crazy. And the amount of free agent money that they allocated to bring back guys that I guess were fine last year. 
If you looked at how last season ended and you looked at the roster and you thought, what we need to prioritize here is making sure we don't lose Zach Ertz and James Conner. It's like, right. okay. Like, I, I don't know. I do not know what to make of the way this team is made up, but let's get to the biggest question about the offense. Can they just be the team they were over the first half of the season again? And that kind of gets into what you were saying and that I like the quarterback. We've seen such great flashes from him. If they can just be even 80% of what they were over the first half of last season all the way through the year, if he avoids injury, I understand talking yourself into that if you're the Cardinals, even if I don't love it. Well, then I think a lot of that, too, is kind of tied to the question of, do we trust this offense to survive the absence of DeAndre Hopkins in the first half of the year? I, I don't know that I do. I don't, I don't know that I, that I believe Hollywood Brown is a wide receiver to be enough to make up for the hole that's going to exist with DeAndre Hopkins' absence. That's a really tough thing for them to come up, to, to overcome. Um, I think that attributing that entire cold streak that they had at the last, at the back end of last year to losing Hopkins would be a little bit of an overreach, but that offense certainly stalled out when he wasn't on the field. Uh, and this offense is really built you know, with the need of having, I guess not even an X, I heard Seth kind of make this joke, but their left wide receiver um, on the field at all times. So I have a lot of questions about what this offense is going to look like. And I think that they've kind of gone backwards a bit in terms of the run game stuff too, that we probably all like Cliff Kingsbury for in the first place when he first got this job. So again, what actually is this offense? If you don't have your X receiver and you have this, I guess, middling offensive line at best, and tight ends that aren't really like matchup killers either. It's a bunch of sub six foot wide receivers that are playing with the quarterback that would probably like to have a guy to go win those 50 50 balls in the air. So I, I don't know. I don't know if this is enough to get through that first six or so weeks, you know, without DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah. And not a team with any flexibility in the way they use those receivers. Right. So I just want to see what the offense looks like. And I want to see if they learned anything from what the back half of the last couple seasons have been. Has that we want to be static so we can play with tempo mindset at the expense of everything else. Is that worth it? Is that worth it with how staid and stagnant your offense starts to feel? I think that's my biggest question here. And also, I know they brought James Conner back, and James Conner scored a bunch of touchdowns last year. <laughs> I know where you're going with this, yeah. The, the running game was bad. When you yep. think about how juicy the looks are that this team gets, they were 30th in yards after contact per rush last year. They had the fourth highest rate of runs for negative yards or no gain, despite getting the second lightest box counts in the entire league. You don't have guys that can create after contact. That's the no, problem. No, it just... <laughs> yeah. They bet on the, the bets they made. I, I mean, James Conner and Zach Ertz were fine last year, but to be like, this is what we are. These are we our dudes. Bring the band back together. <laughs> I, I just, I really don't get it. The one thing I, I want to ask, or I, I want to think about though, how does the offensive personnel shake out without Hopkins? They used 12 personnel on 21% of their snaps last year, which is actually the 12th highest rate in the league. They were number one in 10 personnel. They still do a decent amount of that and did a lot of that. But with Ertz and with McBride and with Max Williams, who I think is all the way back from injury now, do we see a lot of two tight end sets early in the season when they don't have all of those receivers? And is that a little bit of a change up maybe as their baseline offense from what we saw over the last couple of years? 
I'd like to say yes, but then it just brings me right back to the thought of like, what does that even mean for this <laughs> offense? Like, yes, I do. Do I like Ertz and McBride like theoretically as a pairing of tight ends? Like, yeah, it's fine. I don't think anybody deserves to be fired for that. But what does that actually do for your offense? It is really where I, I land more often than not. And then this what does just that actually do for you is the prevailing question about this team. Yes, Every single move, offense it's like, and defense. Right, but what does this actually do for you? <laughs> yes. And this just circles back to Kyler, which is like, even if you do get first team all pro, you know, MVP contention level play for him. What like what is the ceiling for this offense as a whole then? Is it going to be Super Bowl contending level offense? Or is it just he puts out every tire fire that we light week after week because he's just that great. And we've seen him be that great in stretches. I just don't think that they, I don't think that their ceiling is real enough for me to think that even the best version of Kyler Murray would change how I feel about the rest of this offense. I also think that, you know, we're trying to say if things break right, if he's healthy all year. Yes. Kyler never Murray known is that a to be small true man. Team, man. He has never been able to stay healthy for an entire season. Even if he's avoided catastrophic injury, these lingering things that he has to deal with during the, down the back half of the year, injuries are often fluky, but maybe for him they're not. Maybe, maybe not. we just get to a place where he's going to be at 70% of what he was in week one by the time we get to Christmas every single year. And if that's just how this team has to operate and you're putting so much onto him, then ultimately, I think you're going to end a lot of these seasons disappointed. Yep. I mean, and their best veterans, their best skill position veterans on offense are on the older are on the older side. You know, I think Hopkins <laughs> is still a great too. player. Yeah, Hopkins is still a great player, but he's 30 now. A.J. Green is 34. Zach Ertz is in his 30. Like, there's, there's so – the roster imbalance, I guess, is probably the most flummoxing thing about it because if this was just a team full of 26 to 29-year-olds, I'll say, you know what? Hey, maybe one of them breaks out, you know, and changes the trajectory of what, how we feel about a certain position group on this team. All these guys, you know, I think a lot of their best veteran guys have played their best football or is close to putting their best football behind them. So, I, I again, like, I don't know if there's enough for them to survive the inevitable cold streak that's going to come, whether it's Kyler Murray nursing an ankle like it was in the second half of last season or the fact that they can't block or create, you know, any uh, offense in the running game without using Kyler's legs. Those are the types of issues that have come up time after time for this offense. And year over year, they have just not had enough on their roster to get a true, uh, credible answer long term. And I don't see that being much, if at all, different this season. But this is what you just what you just said is so perfect. Those 26 to 29 year old guys, they don't have any of those guys because the draft has gone one of two ways for this team. They've either missed entirely or they have used a pick to trade yep. for one of those 30-something guys that we're yep. talking about. And that's how you run into these moments that we're looking at. Here are some of the guys drafted in the first three rounds by the Arizona Cardinals over the last five years, six years. Robert Kandiche, Brandon Williams, the cornerback who they drafted in the third round, Hassan Reddick, Chad Williams, the wide receiver, Josh Rosen, Mason Cole, Christian Kirk, Andy Isabella. All of those guys were drafted in the first three rounds from 2016 to 2019. All of those guys are currently off the roster. They just don't have that underlying collection of talent because they've traded it for older players or they have not found productive guys in the draft. It doesn't exist for this team. Hey, and everybody got extensions, so whoopee. <laughs> Great job, everybody. On that note, let's get to the defense. What's the biggest question you have about the defense? 
Uh, biggest question for them defensively is: Can anybody touch the quarterback on not bl- on non blitzes for this team? <laughs> that that's where I'm at. Um, and I think that this will come back to you, the two guys. They might that I'm not most have to worry about to it because they might be blitzing eighty percent of the time. Hey, it's Vance Joseph, exactly. So this my question might be a completely moot point. Um, and I'm probably going to circle back to this when we talk about the guys that we're most excited to see. Um, it's the roles of Zayvon Collins and Isaiah Simmons that I'm really kind of fascinated by. Um, something with Simmons that has definitely caught my, my attention a couple of times is he continually refers to himself as a secondary player now. So I think that we're not having smoke blown up our butts that he's actually moving to being more of that kind of big nickel type, you know, or maybe being like that weak outside linebacker when, you know, sometimes he's in coverage, sometimes he's pressuring. Um, I think that that's going to be really fascinating. And to your point of like them going all in on things that kind of leave you scratching your head, they let Jordan Hicks walk because they're giving this defense over to Zayvon Collins at the second level. And he wasn't good enough for them to trust to play many snaps in the second half of last season. And he was bad. He was a little nicked up. But even when he was healthy, he wasn't logging many snaps. So if he hasn't made a major leap, and I don't know that I've seen major leap level play from Zayvon in the preseason when he was there. Losing a major pass rush uh, piece in Chandler Jones, not making up for it in an acquisition, and having these guys who have not really been the best contributors to this defense having to take on not only different roles, but larger roles in a lot of cases, it just leaves me kind of scratching my head and then asking a lot of questions again about what the ceiling of this type of defense is. The weirdness on defense is incredible. They drafted, they traded for Trayvon Mullen like last week, and yep. he's going to start a corner for them. And they probably needed to. Antonio Hamilton, who is probably going to get a decent amount of snaps for them at corner, is now on the non-football injury list because he had a cooking accident. Like It's just crazy, all of the stuff that has happened to them in the defensive backfield. It, I think Vance Joseph is a very good coach. We talked about this a little bit during our big questions we had about defenses in the NFL conversation a couple weeks ago. I think he's done a really good job. It's one of the funkiest defenses in the entire league. You know, they blitz a ton. They play a ton of weird zone coverages behind it. If you look at their combinations of coverages and pressures, it it is one of the most outlandish outlier teams in the entire league in some of the ways they try to play stuff. And they've really had to cobble it together, and we'll see if they can do it one more time. The last thing I want to ask you about Isaiah Simmons, him wearing, him being the defensive play caller and, and moving into that role. How do you feel about that? You think that's a thing? You think that's a good thing? I don't know who else would you hand it to, I guess, is my response to that. Strong uh, point. <laughs> I don't know who else you'd give it to. Um, I, do, I do think that, to me, I think it's just more confirmation of what I think I've heard from Isaiah Simmons in media availability, um, some of the things I've heard from the coaching staff during their media availabilities, which is that I think that everybody has kind of come to embrace, less so accept, but embrace the fact that his role had to change within this defense not only for the sake of the defensive structure, but making sure that you're getting the most out of him as a player. Um, and I think that they're going to try to use him as a always around the ball type. You know, a lot of zone coverage, I think, a lot of pressuring with him, um, you know, manning up on tight ends and backs more often. They, they've been kind of throwing him in every which direction, you know, for, for the first part of his career and asking him to play like straight ahead Mike Backer, which I think any of us could have looked at, you know, his college tape and said that that was probably not the greatest of ideas. Uh, but I think that now that you might be moving him to a more natural fit as that Sam Backer type or an outside backer type in general, that's good for this defense, you know, beyond just what it does for him. So I, I guess I support it because I don't know who else would call the defense if not for him. 
I assume is Isaiah Simmons is the guy you're most excited to watch on this team. That's that's my name. Yeah, there aren't that many be, options yeah. to be honest with you. If you're looking for like young, exciting players, this team <laughs> yeah. does not have a ton of young, exciting players. Yeah, I guess maybe you could say Marcus Golden, but I think we all kind of know who he is as a player. I don't know whether he's good or bad. I don't think that he would patch over what other issues there are. Isaiah Simmons, I think, has the potential to patch over some issues that this defense has if we get the absolute best version of him. What does a successful season look like for the Cardinals? Um, I say eight and nine or nine and eight, and you sneak into the wild card, and you're somewhat healthy that enough is to fucking compete. Depressing. Oh yeah. my god! This is the last cheap year of their quarterback's rookie deal that they just gave a hundred fifty million dollars to. Nine and eight next season. Yeah, ask me again next season when they're expensive and middling, and I'll really tell you how I feel about this team. But oh that's where god. I'm at with them. Um. It's Kyler Murray, please save us. You know, you're our only hope. <laughs> you know, that that's where I'm at with this roster. Um, I will say if DeAndre Hopkins come back, comes back, he's healthy and really productive, then maybe they do have a chance to really compete at the top of this division. But outside of that, there's not enough on this roster to make me feel like they can lift themselves out of, you know, some of the roster holes that they've built. Man, that is truly bleak. I'm going to go with making the playoffs and another aspect of this, another layer of it. I want to watch a season where they don't crater at the end. Mm -hmm. That would be a success to me. Can we see some linear progress from the start of the season to the end of the season? Can we build on some of the things that are happening to us rather than have some of those things taken away? That to me would be a marker of success for this team this year. I know that's a small step, but I, I would like to see that from them. And to your point, of you kind of say, like, are you serious? Like, we're talking small kind of moral level victories for a team that just paid their quarterback a whole lot of money and is cashed in on a lot of their picks to bring in some more expensive veterans. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Great stuff. Seattle Seahawks. How are we feeling about the Seahawks? Um, I, I would say in general, this is probably about as close to a quote-unquote teardown as we'll see from the Carol Schneider brain trust. I, I just don't think that they're wired for full-blown rebuild. Um, so I, I'm kind of looking at them through that lens. And through that lens, I'm pretty encouraged with where they're at. Um, I, I feel like 
This this will be a competitive team. I don't expect them to win a ton of games, but I think they're exactly where I think uh, Schneider and Carroll would like them to be, which is competitive enough to be a real team in the NFC West, while also probably not being good enough to win this division. As I started doing this, I was more encouraged as I dug further into it than I thought I would be. And I'm totally with you. They're in a moment of transition and transitions are awkward. Like this is going to be slightly awkward. They just traded a really good quarterback. Even if we think Russ is on the decline, even if we think that they've reached some of his limitations, Russell Wilson was a very good quarterback for a long time. Moving on from him, you're going to take a step back. They have a ton of picks now, which is helpful, but they've really tried to balance getting younger without setting off like a full scale rebuild. And one of the nice parts about this is that a lot of teams that have to retool they got to take one on the chin at some point financially. They've pushed some chips in. They've leveraged themselves with the cap. Seahawks didn't do that. They got $5 million in dead cap this year. And even with the Metcalf and Adams extensions and some of the other guys that they've retained, they have a lot of cap space next year. And so if you can balance some of those expensive guys that they've devoted resources to, like Metcalf and Adams and Quandre Diggs, with young players at premium positions, this draft is has the potential to be huge for them. If they can come out of this draft with two starting tackles and two starting corners on rookie contracts, and then you have that extra first and extra second next year to see if you can go get a quarterback, you still have Lockett, you still have Metcalf. I think this suddenly becomes like a pretty good environment if you want to bring a guy to town. And I didn't necessarily think that three or four months ago. I'm with you. I mean, in terms of rebuild, this is probably about as clean a pivoting situation as you can get in the NFL. Like you said, they're they're not overcommitted. They're not encumbered in terms of their finances. They're not at some major pick deficit or anything like that. You know, they went out and they drafted, you know, premium position players. Which is a change. <laughs> major change. And if you hit on just half of those guys, then you're in a pretty good scenario, you know, and, and now that allows you to really take a look at um, what the entire landscape of the draft and free agency and your roster is. You don't have to hit an offseason and say, we're all fired if we don't go out and find a franchise quarterback in the draft, you know, or we're all fired if we don't trade two first round picks to bring in whatever the next disgruntled veteran quarterback is. They can take a long view of it, which is exactly where you want your head coach and GM to be. And that's probably a, a big reason why I think both of us feel as encouraged with this franchise's situation as we would for a team that just had to hand away, I guess, the best quarterback in their franchise's history. The biggest question about the offense, I don't really know how to ask this because I don't really know how much of the Geno Smith thing matters. Like, I guess the question for 2022 is, what can you get out of Geno Smith? I don't know if the answer actually matters. I just think it's about building the best infrastructure you can moving forward. I don't know how you feel about it. No, infrastructure is a perfect word for it because my question is, what is Shane Waldron's offense exactly? And do they have the pieces for it to matter? Um, this is something I wrote about for a media company that I, I don't even remember where I worked at before I worked at The Athletic, but <laughs> there was some media company I remember doing some data work for. Um, and when Shane Waldron was announced as offensive coordinator, I went back and looked to see what his imprint would have been on Sean McVay's offense. And what I saw was a significant climb in empty snaps year over year over year when Waldron was there. Um, and you talked about it um, on the show with Nate when you did the AFC West and talked about just some of the differences in how Russ uh, approaches empty 
what Shane Waldron's, I think, typical empty package would be is a lot of kind of lateral stretches, quick game. You think your high lows, you know, your smash concepts, your snag or spot concepts, something to get the court, something at the ball at the quarterback's hands efficiently. Um, and outside of pressure. And the I think Rams that did a that's a ton of that with Goff. A ton of it to just right. make things easy for him. I mean, that was their best offense, their best yeah. passing offense. The best drop back game for Goff. sure was under Adam yeah. Empty with Jared Goff in the last couple of years. 100%. So I think if you can bring that or establish that with a guy like Gino, who I think that would fit his skill set as well, is being efficient in his decision making. That's something that can be viable for them, viable enough for them offensively to not be a wreck. My issue or the, the second half of the question where we talk about do the pieces matter or do the, are the pieces enough to matter comes into running the football. When you, do you want to get into condensed splits? And if you do, you're not asking that receiving core to be good blockers. I think that they have okay blockers. I wouldn't call them good and certainly nowhere near the level of what Waldron enjoyed as a, as a quarterback's coach in, um, in Los Angeles. So that's something to me that I'm really fascinated by is whether or not this offense becomes really disjointed because of stuff that I think works well for them in the passing game, which is being more spread out. And we've seen that in this preseason doesn't necessarily jive with some of the 11 or 12 personnel under center condensed splits, wide zone, um, you know, or misdirection types of run game. So that that's really where my questions lie for this team right now. I assume they're going to use a lot of play action. Gino had a very high play action rate last year, similar to Russ's. I mean, this team, Russ did run a lot of boots, even if it was some version of the Russell Wilson offense. I still think you saw some of the, the elements that Shane Waldron wants to bring to that. The one thing I was really surprised by looking back at the numbers, Gino ate a horrifying number of sacks last year. It was 13 sacks on 111 dropbacks. That's got to get better. I mean, that that's one thing where hopefully if they're an empty and they're letting him operate a little bit quicker, you mitigate some of that. I, this is all stuff where it's like, it would be nice, but I don't really think it matters. Like if they yep. come away from this season and they're sitting there on January 1st and they say, we have two starting tackles long-term in Charles Cross and Charles Cross and Abe Lucas two. We feel great about those guys. We have DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. That's a win. Like that, that to me is a win because you're just trying to build the infrastructure and build the foundation for whoever the quarterback ends up being. It's a weird comparison. This kind of feels like where the Broncos were a year ago, mm-hmm. where all you're trying to do is make sure you're collecting these pieces to put yourself in a good spot a year from now when it's time to figure out that quarterback position. And it feels similar to me. And it's just really funny that they just traded their quarterback to the Broncos. Yes, I'm at 100%. And you you brought it up with Cross and Lucas. And I think that kind of marries up with what I was talking about with Waldron is it's it's kind of a hairy proposition to start rookie tackles on both ends of your offensive line. Um, not ideal, but I think that between the wide zone with tight ends and misdirection and the empty passing game, both of those styles of offense are kind of built to protect your young, some young offensive linemen or guys who are trying to get their feet wet or maybe aren't the just most talented guys up front. Um, I think that Cross obviously has star potential as a tackle. Um, I think that Lucas has obviously um, impressed a lot of people um, and has earned the starting position. And this was, I don't want to skip ahead, but those two are the guys that I think are going to determine whether or not this season is a narrative success for the Seahawks is if you have true bookends in your young tackles, guys who can be around for eight, nine, 10 years and be highly productive in that way, 
then yeah, this, this goes from maybe a great pivot situation to certainly one of the best franchise pivot scenarios that you could have had after parting ways with, with the franchise quarterback. And I think the corners also play into that. If you could stumble yep. into a couple corners in this draft and they spent some picks on them. So let's get to the defense. What's the biggest question you have about the defense heading into the year? Um, a lot of, it's similar to Arizona, although they don't blitz. It's just, can you generate enough pass rush? Um, I, I, I was going to ask you how you feel about this group of edge rushers and how they fit into this defensive scheme. It's just not to me. It's just not enough explosively if you're really trying to create long term sustainable pass rush with four, which is what I think that these three four types, you know, the three four scheme types that we talk about off of that Fangio tree really want to rely on. Um, I posted a picture of it on Twitter uh, last night, but looking at them play the odd front. Against these heavy personnel sets. I saw you digging into that Seahawks tape last man, night. Man, it's harrowing, man. Like I, I didn't even know, <laughs> I didn't know how, what, you know, how to feel, you know, looking at these Seahawks uniforms lined up in the odd front. Um, but I think that they've, you know, from what I watched of them in the preseason, I think they've done a pretty good job instituting the, the skeletons of what you want this defense to be. It's all weak side rotation, meaning you're either playing cover three or cover one and you're rolling down that weak safety or you're playing quarters and quarter, quarter halves. And that's what you see in the preseason. So it's like, okay, the bones of this thing are truly being installed. I like their interior pieces, you know, your Shelby Harris's, your Quentin Jefferson's, your Puna Ford's, um, Al Woods, who, if not, is not the oldest interior defensive lineman that's still actively playing in the league. Can't be far off. They have the, they have the I think he's really good for what they want to do. He's excellent. You know, a, per, a perfect type of big body, big body guy to put on the interior. God, so they sure have is. all the interior guys that you need to eat up blocks. Um, and I think that that'll be a big help for Jordan Brooks. Um, I just don't think that there's going to be enough explosiveness on the edge for them to generate real, you know, high levels of defensive production. This is also driven by the fact that you're just out on Boye Mafe. 100%. <laughs> like, not even, I'm not even taking arguments right now. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'm not even taking arguments on Boye Mafe right at the moment. I was looking at some of these numbers just in the, because we talked about this a uh, couple earlier this month, just the shift that they had already started to undergo last season. In 2020, the Seahawks faced 58 early down runs with five or six defenders in the box. That was 29th in the league. They were right there with good old Gus Bradley. Yep. Last year, there was 113. So twice as many. It was 15th in the NFL. You know, that's it doesn't it's not near the top, but that's a pretty dramatic shift from what they were in 2020. They were seventh in cover three snaps last year after leading the league in 2020. So we've seen the change start. And the one position group I wanted to ask you about with the guys that we've seen that are veterans, how do you think this scheme plays into what Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams are? For Quandre, I think that this is like match made in heaven, you know, that as a safety. When you talk about the versatile skill sets, the best versions of this defense, whether you're thinking about the Packers, you're thinking about, you know, Fangio and the Bears, uh, you think about Staley and, and the Rams when he was there. It requires a high level of play from your safeties and a versatility from your safeties. So I think that for Quandre, he can do just about anything that's being asked of him, whether it's playing in the middle of the field, playing as a quarters defender, playing as a halves defender. Um, I, I think that he can fill all those roles. It's really fascinating for me with Jamal because I think the perfect scenario is, hey, you're a big nickel on most snaps and then a dime backer on third down. I think that would be perfect world scenario. 
But that doesn't answer the question of where your base alignment is, you know, down in and down out. So that's what I'm fascinated by is he's going to be lined up over tight ends, but is it going to have to be a lot of cover three? You know, is he going to be good enough as a quarters defender? Will he be good enough as a cover one defender? Those two things being like the hallmark of that Fangio type of scheme. If he is and we get that kind of, you know, high levels of production from him, then, yeah, this defense does have an opportunity on the back end if those corners hit to be very good in coverage, you know, and very versatile in coverage beyond that in a way that might be able to help them, you know, not with, with the fact that they can't generate a bunch of edge rush um, this season. But that's where it all comes down to is can you get more out of Jamal besides just being like a pressure guy or always roll down and play in middle of field close coverage? Because if that's the case, then it just kind of lands you in the exact same scenario that you've been in, you know, last season, which is de-emphasizing the use of middle of field close, but not really being able to divorce yourself from using a bunch of it on early downs. Feels like at corner, this team is going to give those young guys opportunities. Uh, Tariq yep. Wollin and Kobe Bryant both have a chance to start. And why the hell not? Why not? <laughs> right? Like that's what, what else is going. What else is why going not? on in Seattle right now? Yeah, like, why not? Why not? And that's how I feel about the young tackles. You, know, you said it yep. could be a little hairy trotting those guys out there. It's like who gives a shit? Yep. Like as long as you're trying. I mean, they're going to try to stay competitive. That's you know the entire point of this team is this always compete crap, and that's important. <laughs> yes, I do think sir. that there's value in that. But at this point, why not give those guys every single chance to succeed? Because if you win five games this year or you win seven games this year, it truly does not matter. Yep. With these corners, the thing if that ownership really is on board in. with this, by the way, which I think yes, they have 100%. to be considering some of the decisions that have been made. Yeah, I'll say otherwise. I think that we would have seen a regime change with the with the um, exit of Russell Wilson or a different quarterback. There would have been a panic right. move somewhere along the way. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. As far as these corners go, one of the things that I'm really fascinated by is whether or not they can be high level press types of corners. Because if you, if, if for whatever questions I have about Jamal Adams, if you've got guys on the perimeter that can stand up and press coverage and play one on one, well. The question of what your role is as a safety gets, you know, goes from the size of the ocean to the size of a cup of water, right? Like you don't have to be responsible for as much because you have the entire sidelines handled. Um, Tariq Wollin, I think at his best can certainly be that. We've seen that in the preseason. We've seen that from some of the practice reps. Uh, something that I think a lot of guys are optimistic about and on size and ability, it certainly looks like he's got all the tools to be that level of guy. If you get something similar or 70% of that out of Kobe Bryant as well, well, now we're cooking with something. Now you can go into the next draft or the next free agency class and say, hey, if we're going to spend big money on something, it's going to be on the premier guys, right? Edge rusher and quarterback. That's what we'll that's what we'll invest the rest of our resources in. So if you get that out of your tackles, out of your corners, the edges of your offense and defense, if they're able to perform at that level, then yes, you're probably like one and a half to two moves away from going from, oh, this is a down year to right back competing for the top of the NFC West, which I do think would be in the picture if those guys hit. Bingo. And they right now, if they did nothing based on the money that they've allocated and the cap settles at $225 million next year, they'd have $52 million in cap space today. Can't and ask they, for better than that. And man. they have moves to make. There are guys, I mean, Shelby Harris, they got in that trade. Shelby Harris is 32. They can save $9 million if they move on from Shelby Harris. Gabe Jackson, they can save $6.5 million if they move on from Gabe Jackson. I'm not trying to kick these guys off the team, but right. they do have some flexibility here. And maintaining that flexibility in some of the decisions that they've made, I think, has really allowed them to pivot smoothly 
in a way that many teams have not been able to when they've been put into a similar situation. Yep. So for all of the <laughs> failings from the Seahawks drafts in recent years and all that stuff, they have not put themselves that far behind the eight ball as they try to figure out how we get to the next stage of things here. It it would be the most Pete Carroll thing in the world if after all of the drama between changing the defense and changing the quarterback that you look up in 2023 and they're right back at the top of this division with another franchise quarterback. It seems like this guy just knows how to get his franchises and his programs back where they need to be. Successful season. I think we already hit it. I mean, it's just yep. getting to a place at the end of the year where we feel good about the underlying talent that we have. We feel good about the ways that we've weaponized that draft capital that we got in the rust trade. And we're starting this thing off right. And we are an attractive destination to whoever the next guy happens to be. 100% was just talking with, just, just talking about this with some of my colleagues last night. And I said, six and 11 cross hits. Lucas looks fine. Um, you know, woolen hits. Bryant looks fine from a narrative and from a win total perspective. You should be throwing a party if you're a Seahawks fan. Like it couldn't be much better than that. All these guys, all these teams have two first round picks next year. The Seahawks have two first round picks and two second round picks. They they have got a Whew. war chest to work yes. with when it comes to this. And you'd have to hope as a Seahawks fan that you're in a position where you want them to spend it on the right guy because it's if not the final piece, then one of the final two or three. Guy you cannot wait to watch on the Seahawks this year. Um, so I was up in the air between Tariq Woolen and Boye Mafe, but I'll go with Mafe. Mafe, I'll go with Mafe. Oh my because god! Because I, I want to see if I want to see if he can do it well enough on early downs to justify where he was drafted, and I think the way that people feel about him as a pass rusher. So that's I'm I'm just fascinated with what his role is going to be on this team. Woolen, um, while he was a later round draft pick, I, I spent enough time really kind of digging into his film for me to feel confident in my evaluation of him right now. Mafe is the so type far? of player. Mafe is the type of player is somebody that I've never particularly been a fan of. So I want to see if I'm wrong, I guess is, is where I'm at. What with a the twist. Guy like him. I did not expect to hear that name. Why do you think Woolen fell as far as he did if you felt that good about him in the process? I think it's just rawness. I think a lot of it is rawness. Um, um, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a level of competition versus production issue because it's not like he just ate everybody alive that he saw while he was playing at UTSA. Um, but the tools are there. And I think a lot of it is just like consistency, consistency in his reps, because you would get a play where he walks a guy to the third row as a press corner and in plays where you might not fall all the way asleep, but you certainly wouldn't expect him to give up some kind of se- some of the separation that he did. Um, but on tools alone, man, that that's a guy who can 100% go. I think he still needs to clean up some things in terms of his press technique, but he's got everything athletically that you can ask for from a play at the line of scrimmage type of cornerback. He's a six four guy who ran a four two six. What is there to talk about? Like, what is there to talk about? I mean, I would just take him in the and third he's got long round arms. and figure the rest out later. Yes, one hundred percent. He's got real length, real height, um, and I think that the other part is that he probably doesn't have the greatest ball. He did not show the greatest ball skills on the planet while he was at UTSA. God, six four that runs a four two is like a Pete Carroll fever dream. One hundred percent. I'm going Charles Cross. I, I cannot wait to watch him. I, I just I. Everything about his tape, I really enjoyed. I thought that he was underrated as a run blocker in college. I thought he showed enough of that despite where he was coming from. And as a pass blocker, I think he's got a really fascinating and intriguing toolbox. So really excited to watch him play and excited to watch Lucas play. Again, if they hit on both of those guys, oh boy, now you're starting to cook. That's all we got. Always good to chat with you, buddy. Really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. No, thank you for having me. 
Guys, please, if you could, a couple things for me. Subscribe to The Athletic Football Show on YouTube. There's a link in the show description. We are really going to crank up the YouTube stuff this year. Deontay is going to be on our preview show every single week that we'll be doing live on YouTube. Really, really looking forward to that. I hope you guys start to check that stuff out. We're going to roll out a really new slate of stuff and one that I think is going to be really cool. So we're going to try some stuff and appreciate you guys kind of being along the ride here with us. One more thing down in the show description. We are doing a picks contest this year on Run Your Pool. Thanks to them for setting us up. Five games a week against the spread. We'll be talking about that every single week on that preview show. You guys can give us endless amounts of shit as we get all of these games wrong. So please be involved in that. We're going to have a really good time. Beller, last time I checked before we started recording, there was like 400 people signed up already. So let's crank that up. Let's get to like a couple thousand here before we kick off for week one. I would love that. We will be back tomorrow with Aaron Schatz, our last division preview doing the AFC East. Until then, appreciate you guys listening. Talk to you soon. This was the Athletic Football Show.